thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Karen Smith. I'm Kim Morrison. And I'm Cindy O'Meara. And oh my goodness, for all of our listeners, get ready for an amazing show today, one that is going to leave you breathless, it's going to stop you in your tracks and make you really feel like, my goodness gracious me, there's a whole world that's happening out there for so many people that sometimes we can become so oblivious to. We have an amazing woman on the show with us today, Robin Lewis. Now, Cindy's going to talk a lot more with Robin because Cindy actually met Robin at an event and fell madly, deeply and passionately in love with this woman, and I can absolutely see why. Robin has the most inspirational story I think I have ever read. And I think that what she has overcome and created in her own life is astounding, to say the least. Um, I'm in awe of you, Robin, and I can't wait for our listeners to hear about your story, to hear about your background, to hear about your pains, your sufferings, and how you've brought yourself to where you are today. You are... Uh, you're an incredible woman, unbelievable woman. Thank you for being a part of the show and welcome. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I, look, I have, I have I'm as nervous as all heck. <laughs> and you know, Robin, um, this is just a chat. This is a chat with the four of us. Just think of it that way and that um, it's about your story. And I was in... In absolute, um, from the minute I met you, I was blown away by you because I don't know if you remember, but we were, I was chatting about a book that I was reading, which was called Blood on the Rosary. And since that time, we've actually interviewed Margaret Harrod uh, about it. And I was talking about the incest that had happened um, in her life to you. And I don't know, I think I was just so into the story that um, we were just chatting about it. And and then you opened up with your story. So this was before the event, and you actually didn't talk about this um, when you were speaking on the stage, but this was before the event. So can we start with your story when, um, when you were a child and living at home and um, what you told me? Um, about the sexual assaults or about my... Yes. Yeah, um, I just grew up in a very violent uh, childhood. I had a very um, violent alcoholic father that um, would viciously beat uh, myself, my mother and my siblings on a nightly basis. Um, and from a very young age, uh, with all the drinking that was going on, all his um, drunk friends and co-workers that used to come to the house and that we used to have to babysit for. Um, yes, I was regularly taken advantage of um, sexually. Um, it's still very hard for me to talk about it um, to this day, uh, the terrible things that happened to me as a young girl and, and not only me, to my sisters and uh, also my brother. My brother... Um, was sexually assaulted when he was sent away to the far west as a young boy uh, because he had lots of um, disabilities, which I believe were um, were as, as a direct result of uh, the vicious beatings that my mother took when she was pregnant with him. Um, and so he went off to the far west in Sydney and he was uh, sexually assaulted as well. And, um, yes, yeah, just terrible some of the terrible things that happened to us as children. So you're basically babysitting um, your father's friends, children. Yes. And, and, and your sister was too or your, your siblings were too and, and then they would come home and take advantage of you. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I want to know where were the, you know, where were the women? Like I know your mother was being beaten but where were the women of these men? Well, on one occasion, um, 
the the wife knew what was going on and um when I really um uh rejected his advantages his advances, uh he screamed to his wife, Get this F and C U N T out of here and she actually hid me for the night and um she took me home at about five, five thirty in the morning while it was still dark before he woke up. Um, so she knew. She knew what was happening. Hmm. Um, yeah, so yeah. So did you finish school? Um I, I went to year nine, but I, I wasn't very good at school. I spent most of my time like hiding from from the other children. We were we were bullied quite badly at school, so school wasn't my favourite place. And so, once you finished school in year nine, um, what did you get, end up going and doing? Um, I'd always been a worker, and I loved horses, so I, I'd actually been working since I was about twelve. I used to uh, work for a local horse trainer and used to get up at like three o'clock in the morning, go to work and then come home, get ready, go to school or pretend I was going to school and I'd go and wag most of the time, <laughs> um, go up the bush and ride the horses and then come home like nothing had happened, like I'd been at school all day, yeah. So, and then I would go to work after I got home from school, um, yeah. So didn't anybody figure that out, that, that that's what you were doing? Like, wasn't there truant officers around? No, not back in the set of the 80s, the early 80s there wasn't. Um, but no, most of us used to wag. That's, um, we used to go up to a place that was called Charlie Chinaman's Dam and it had a dam and an old fruit um, shed there where they used to um, sell the fruit from and... We just made like a cubby and we'd go in there and light fires and smoke cigarettes and drink alcohol and, yeah, and just hang out there most days. It was easier than going to school and getting bullied, I can assure you. <laughs> so you basically had a pretty rough upbringing. Yeah. So when, um, when did you get into um, drugs, past cigarettes, past alcohol, and what prompted you to get into um, drugs? Uh, when I was 15, I went down to Sydney to stay with some um, city cousins and um, we went out one night just hanging out like teenagers do and uh, they brought out what was, I now know it's marijuana and um, we smoked marijuana and um, from that time on I was hooked on it. It just took away all my problems and, um, yeah, so that's basically when I started smoking marijuana. It's interesting that you should say it took away all your problems because there's um, a very good book out called Chasing the Scream and it talks about, you know, drug addiction is more likely about the problems and the life someone's leading as opposed to the actual addiction. Uh, it's It's really interesting. But we'll talk... I know we're going to get further into this. So from marijuana, um, where did you go from there with drugs? Um, I started uh, taking a drug known as Speed or, um, yeah, the old bikey Speed they used to call it or amphetamines. It's a, uh, a family of the stimulant group. Um, it's enough, so, you know, it makes you alert, it keeps you awake, it suppresses your appetite. Um, and for a while, it makes you feel really good. Makes you feel ten foot proof and uh, ten foot tall and bulletproof. Um, but that doesn't that doesn't last long. Um, yeah, so I started taking that when I was about seventeen, and um, yeah, by the time I was twenty one, I was injecting on a daily basis. Um, yeah. How did you afford to do this? Um, well, when I could work. When I was younger and I was working, I, I could pay for it quite easily. But as my addiction went on and um, I was become unemployable because um, for some reason, uh, some people, it makes them scratch their skin. And so I was quite, uh, I wasn't um, presentable to be working in, you know, especially in public, like any public jobs. Um, so... Um, yeah, then I then I went to shoplifting and selling marijuana um, to to um, finance the, the the buying of the speed 
And you were living in Sydney still at this time? No, no, I didn't live in Sydney. I lived in West Wyalong. I was living in West Wyalong, um, out in the Riverina, a country town in uh, rural New South Wales. Um, yeah, and I moved to Newcastle when I was about uh, 21, 22. Yeah, so, but I was only there for a short time and then I went back to the country, yeah. I remember when um, you were doing the talk in Burrawa, you had a photo up uh, of what you looked like in three different stages and, and one, you were just a young girl, two, I think you were started to scratch your face and then three, your face was a bit of a mess. So I can understand how, um, you know, people didn't want you to work in, pu- in the public eye. So, yeah. so you went from working and then you had to go to shoplifting in order to um, make sure that you in, in, um, continued your daily injection of, um, of uh, this is still speed? Yeah. Yeah. So when, tell me about your first interaction with ICE. That was in um, the late 1999. I was uh, living in Newcastle at the time with my daughter's father. Um, and... We were, both of us were shoplifting and um, we would give the goods to a a drug dealer and then one day he just said, I'll try this and um, it's a new type of speed and um, we tried it and um, I actually went blind for three days. I couldn't, I couldn't see, like my eyes were all um, like sort of milky and I couldn't see and I laid in bed because I was so out of it. I'd taken too much because I was used to taking a, like a big amount of speed. And then this new drug come on the um, scene, which we didn't realise what it was and how strong it was. So I basically overdosed on it. And um, so I laid in bed for roughly three days, unable to see, um, unable to really do anything. I was just like awake. I was like I was almost mummified. I was sort of frozen in my body. Um, yeah, it's a really bizarre feeling. I, I'd never like to do it again. But that didn't stop me from using it. As soon as I recovered, I was, um, yeah, I had a love affair with it. Um, yeah. And were you, did that scare you, that not seeing and being a bit mummified for that three days? Or did the ice not allow you that fear? Uh, I think just the addiction of, you know, the addiction to the needle and um, just wanting that that drug that would take away all my worries. When I was on it, I didn't have to um, focus on all the bad things that had happened in my life. I basically, it could take, it would take me away to somewhere, to a different place and I didn't have to think about, yeah, all the trauma. Mm. Let's talk about your daughter. So you said in 1999 the father of your, uh, your, your daughter um, and you were stealing and doing ice. How old was your daughter at the time? Um, in 19, she would have been um, 11 years old in 1999. How did she cope? How did she deal with what was happening or did she not know what was happening? Um, I think she knew what was happening. Um, to this day, my daughter doesn't see that a father has done anything wrong or has a drug problem, had a drug problem or, you know, even though he's uh, been in a lot of trouble and, you know, and whatever, it all seems to come back onto me. It's all sort of been my fault, but... Um, he was a lot older than me. He was almost 10 years older than me and he'd been on heroin for a long time before I'd met him. Um, but, yeah, my daughter, um, I didn't realise at the time, like, just how selfish I was. And um, because I was so beaten down by my partner, her father, um, I basically, um, I had no self-esteem and I had no self-worth. Um, and so, yeah, I just, um, I, I just, it's hard to explain, but it was, it was really hard for me because I was trying to, to survive myself, if that makes sense. 
and I've got a really abusive, violent partner. And, um, yeah, I just didn't realise at the time how much I was neglecting my daughter and how much, how selfish I was. You know, it's taken me to get sober um, to realise just, you know, just how much drugs and alcohol did affect, you know, everyone. It's almost like you had a pattern with men. Um, and I know that's changed um, because you speak so highly of your beautiful man you're with at the moment. But it was, it was almost like this was a pattern. You had a father that was an alcoholic and abusive. You had men around you that were your father's friends that were alcoholic and abusive. And then was it a string of boyfriends or just this one man that was alcoholic, drug addict and abusive to you? Um, my daughter's father was quite violent to me, but um, every man that I've basically had in my life was um, either abusive to me, like verbally or physically or mentally. Um, yeah, basically I was screwed over by any man and every man that um, I was ever involved with in some way or form, some way, shape or form. What do you think changed that enabled you to meet a man um, like Andy? Andy, isn't it? Andy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Andy, yeah. What, what, was it just coming clean or was there more, um, was there more in your life that happened that enabled you to open up and be able to, I don't know, have somebody different? Like we always find that there's a pattern in our lives and we seem to do the same thing over and over again until we realise we have to do something different in order to change that. So what did you do in order to do that? Well, I think when I moved back to West Wylong about two years ago, I got involved with a, a childhood friend of mine and um, he treated me like absolute crap. Like he only wanted me when it was serving to him, you know. He was very, you know, was very self-serving sort of person and... Um, you know, one day um, after I'd found out that he'd been cheating on me, um, I just went, you know what, I don't deserve this. I deserve better. And so um, I basically started um, putting myself, you know, uh, first. And um, I met Andy and it wasn't, um, it wasn't rosy to start with um, because he was setting his ways and I was setting my ways. And, um, yeah, we... Uh, Actually, we stopped seeing each other for a little while and he went his way and I went my way. And then um, I just decided that I wasn't, didn't want to get involved with another man and I actually stopped looking. And then Andy and I's paths crossed again and um, we both realised that we were meant to be together. So, yeah, now we're engaged and, um, yeah, hopefully getting married at the end of the year and... Yeah, we have an amazing life. Yeah, you definitely do. <laughs> what, what I found really interesting when you were talking is the questions that were asked by the people in the audience, which were, um, I think it was over 100 women of all ages. And I like to try and remember those questions now. And I know that Kim and Karen will probably be able to um, ask those questions. Actually, Kim has probably one question now, but I'll ask the first one. How do you know if your teenager uh, is using drugs? Um, yeah, how do you know? Well, if it's ice, um, their, their um, habits will change. They will stop having an appetite. Just say your son's got a really good appetite and he's a big eater and, you know, um, and then all of a sudden he goes from eating everything in the house um, to not eating, um, you know, he's starting to lose weight, um, he's up all night, um, just that sort of behaviour, um, starts to see maybe sores on their face or on their skin where they're picking at their skin. Not everybody picks at their skin, but, um, you know, it's probably 50-50. Um, and, uh, yeah, basically just that. If, if their habits start changing, their eating and their sleeping habits in particular, 
if they become starting to become moody, aggressive, um, really short, um, yeah, with no patience and stuff like that, they're probably they're good indications that um, you know that something's going on, and it's more than likely drugs and and probably ice. Hmm. It's quite a, a scary predicament and hearing your whole story, Robin, not only is it humbling and, and I'm, I'm so grateful that you're sharing it because I can't imagine the pain that this inflicts into the family unit, particularly, uh, like you just said, then if a son or a daughter, if it's new to a family or your child's got messed up in something, I just, I just firstly want to commend you and honour you for sharing your story because I think the more we become educated in something like this, the more aware we are perhaps before the real damage um, occurs, particularly with our, our youth. I just want to go back to your story and you don't ask to be born into a family that had abuse and a, a terrible father and obviously a mother that, that couldn't um, stand up for herself and her children if you had one message to say back to your father um, now as a 52-year-old woman, what would that message be? Uh, um, what I will say is I didn't realise until my father died um, three years ago that he had a really violent childhood as well. He was beaten like 10 times worse than us. His father was, my grandfather was so, so um, cruel to his children. Um, what I would say to my father now is um, go and talk to someone. Go and go and talk about what's upsetting you, you know, instead of taking it to the bottle. My father um, hid his pain behind the bottle and um, he, his name was actually, his nickname was actually Friendly Fred. When he was sober, he was the most kindest, nicest person. Everyone liked him. He was highly respected. But once he started drinking, he turned into a monster. And, um, you know, that old saying is true. Nobody knows what really goes on behind closed doors. Um, so I would say to my father, just go and talk to someone and, and get some help, you know, instead of drinking alcohol, trying to find the problem at the bottom of a bottle. Yeah, I just think, and also too, for families like this, it's, I think it's a lot more common than we all give it credit for. And I'd like to ask Karen a question here, um, if you don't mind, gorgeous, because a part of me feels that um, someone like Karen with her knowledge and her skill around psychology, that Karen, I want to ask you, looking in, you know, for us to look in to see a family like this or see signs of this, Knowing that her dad has obviously now, we've learned that he's come from a hideous background as well and these patterns can be continual. What exactly is this doing to the psyche? And from a quantum physics point of view, how does that cycle stop and what does it take for someone, not only like Robin, but actually for society to become a part of this? Do you have an answer for that, darling? Wow, Kimmy, that is such a big question for it. Um, well, when you ask from a quantum physics point of view, it's almost, um, it's an easier answer, actually. From a purely physical point of view, you know, I, I, and I've been very, I've been listening very intently and to hear that, you know, Robin's dad came from an even more abusive family, it makes sense that that kind of behaviour is perpetuated from one generation to another. And it does take a willingness to break the cycle and, um, you know, somebody like Robin to say, I've had enough, you know, and it doesn't matter whether you're 5, 15 or 50 in that lifespan to say enough so that then the cycle, you know, has a chance to end um, and something new be created and a new normal in the family be created. And like you've said, Robin, and I just admire you so much. You're such a, and, and being so open about this is so heartwarming. And for you to be able to reflect and look back and see, you know, the impact that that would have had on your daughter and what that, that, what that actually means now in terms of her life rolling forward and her choices of partner and, you know, the way that she lives her life i'm sure you you very keenly and attentively watch 
every move she makes, you know, for any signs, no doubt. Um, well, actually, I haven't spoken to my daughter for about eight years now, um, which is quite very heartbreaking, especially with yesterday being Mother's Day. Um, yeah, and this is all, this is the price I've paid, I've had to pay for the choices that I've made. Well, you know, I, I, I know that in family dynamics when these sorts of things occur, sometimes it's very difficult for uh, reconciliation to take place because as a child they don't understand how these sorts of things could happen and they see that it's happening to them rather than they become, you know, they're, they're part of a cycle or a system. Yeah. Like, don't give up. Don't give up on your daughter and just and, and keep trying and keep just don't stop. She will come around in time. She will as she gets older and she understands this more. But just don't give up. Don't stop. Don't stop trying to be a part of her life because she will get it. She will understand and she will see your pain in time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Kimmy, in terms of the quantum physics part of it and the metaphysics part of the answer, it's all about ending violence. And when we collectively think violent thoughts or have violent behaviours towards ourselves and towards others, if you think of a big universal mind and a quantum soup that we're all swimming in, we're all contributing energetically to this frequency, this vibrational frequency of this planet, through what we do and who we are and our thoughts are creative, our thoughts are things and our emotions are things. So if we're contributing to the quantum soup with self-destruction, destruction of others, violence and suffering, then the opposite of that is launched at the same time is the desire for peace, for harmony. But sometimes we can have too many people weigh in on one side of the scales, which I certainly think that's where the world is right now. And I, and I can't help but wonder if this is one of the reasons why we are in the quandary that we are as a planet. When the weight, you know, the scales are tipped too far in one direction, where we have too many people contributing to that quantum soup with violence, destruction, self-destruction, destruction of others, destruction of, of harmony, destruction of our animals, destruction of, you know, life in itself. So the way through that and the answer to that is to contribute to the quantum soup with peace, harmony. But it has to start with the world inside, like what Robin has chosen to do for herself. It's got to start from the, 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 the one here, this piece of life. It's got to start here, bringing peace, healing, calm, awareness, to the self so that then that's what gets contributed to the quantum soup and then collectively, you know, the more of us that weigh in, um, the more balance we're able to to provide. I know that that sounds very airy-fairy, but, but interestingly enough, science has been able to prove that there is that, um, that, that collective energy that or collective thought or collective contribution that... Um, influences a location so there are some locations particularly in the states where they've um, done these experience that experiments there are some locations that are more prone to violence and they've measured the psychology of those people and they've measured the psychology of the people of the locations that are more prone to harmony and they can see that the way that they think is completely different um so i don't know if that answers your question does it kimmy yeah, it's amazing. I, I just think from, you know, when we hear someone like Robin speaking mm. and um, I, I can't even imagine the hell you were in. I would love to ask, when you were in it, and I'm sure you knew at a very young age that this was not right, that this was not normal, that it was not, I mean, the fact that you were bullied and all the other things that contributed to it, um, I'm sure you knew that this wasn't right, but it would have been very difficult as a child to make it right or to do what's right. And you would have been subject to things beyond comprehension along with your siblings. If there was an opportunity, and I'm trying to make this along with Karen, with what she's saying, if you knew someone looking in like that wife that knew that this was happening, 
if if you could go back in time as that young girl, Robin, what do you think would have been the answer to stop that? I mean, is there a way to stop this when you're in it? Because for so many people, they're, they don't want to get involved. They don't want to, um, they, they think it's not their business. But we've got to appreciate, like Karen just said, that domestic violence and abuse is everybody's business. What do you think would have helped stop this? Do you think this could have been stopped when you were a young girl before it got as bad as it did? Well, all I can say is that um, when we were children and we were getting beaten and so was our mother, um, the neighbours would ring the police. Um, you know, sometimes family members that were staying with us would ring the police. Um, I can't mention any names on air, but there was two policemen in particular in West Wylong and one of them became, went on to become one of the head um, people, police people in um, New South Wales. At the time, he would come to the house and he would take my father back to the pub and he would have more beers with my father. He covered up for my father when my father had a very serious um, car accident. Um, uh, so for me and my brothers and sisters, we didn't have any faith in the police um, because all we knew is that when the police came, they took Dad away, but not to um, reprimand him, to actually take him back to the pub and reward him. I know it was in the, the late 70s, early 70s, late 70s, early 80s, um, you know. But still, when you're a young person and you believe that the police are like a, a health authority, someone that's going to help you, and then to have them actually um, not help you and actually cover up for your father because they were fishing buddies of your father, um, it's sort of... It's really hard to to trust anyone, like, if you can appreciate that. Oh, I'm so, I, I feel sick. We all feel sick. And I'm sure this isn't, it's not, I'm sure it's still happening today. I'm sure there's, we've seen it in the church. We've heard it yeah. through other situations where this is protected. It's a joke. So how the hell, Karen, Cindy, does this ever stop when the powers that be condone it i think that's where we're just imploding on ourselves and i don't know if we've got the answer yet but you know when you look at our little children they are looking to our police our doctors our our churches our leaders of the community for safety when they don't have that in their own homes and when that gets betrayed as well you can imagine why little kids and you know robin i was listening to your story there in terms of you turning to drugs and alcohol as a way to escape the pain shit man i mean honestly i i i, I don't know anybody that would do that any differently you know you're just you're you're such an incredible woman that you're actually still here <laughs> yeah i know it's um it amazes me sometimes because I think back on what's actually happened to me and some of the situations I've been in and, you know, so close to overdosing on drugs and alcohol, um, you know, and some of the beatings that I've taken still to this day, like I've got a lump on my throat and um, I went to the doctors recently, then I went to the specialist at um, John Hunter in Newcastle and... Um, they they couldn't work out what this lump was on my throat and they started asking me a few questions and they said, oh, have you had any domestic violence? And I said, yes. And, you know, they said, you know, what sort of domestic violence? And I said, I used to get choked within an inch of my life. And um, I didn't know it at the time, but there's a bone in my throat that's been actually broken and fractured several times. And it's healed, but it's healed now with like a marble-like lump on the right-hand side of my throat. Um, you know, to to have someone that you think loves you, like choke you out to the point where you're seeing stars and you think you're going to die, like it's, it's an horrific feeling. Like, yeah. I'm wondering if you could share with us 
your pathway out of this. Um, I, I've heard what you've said and I, I, I know we're going to catch up back up with Andy again, but I'd love to hear what, why do you think you've had to endure this and why do you, what, what are you doing with it now? Um, I actually say when I'm uh, giving speeches, I actually say that I don't look at it as 37 years in addiction. I look at it as 37 years in training. Um, so I can help people. I can, like, you know, there's 99% of the people that contact me. Uh, you know, I had a lady today ring me. Um, I was on You Can't Ask That, the TV, the ABC TV show last um, week, the Alcoholics version. And she's seen me and she made contact. And um, it's 99% of the people that I help are the family. The families are the, the ones that... Um, that need the help and um, yeah I just I believe that I, I survived all this so I could go on to educate people and and, um, and show people that you know there is a way out that um, you know um, yeah tell, tell us about who helped you and how um, you found the program um, that you did and are now conducting in your area. So tell us about how that happened. Um, well, I was always, every week I was always at the doctors, um, you know, saying, please, please help me. Like I've been to um, rehab, I've been to detox, I've been to AAs, I've been to NAs, I've been to GAs, all those sort of organisations um, you know, and nothing was working and I was desperate. I knew I was going to die. My liver function levels were through the roof. Like I was grossly overweight. I was so bloated and fat um, from just the bad lifestyle. And I just knew I was going to die. And um, if I didn't do something and I used to beg the doctor, like, help me, help me, please. And they'd given me drugs and all types of different things which weren't helping and weren't working. And... One day my doctor said, um, look, there's a, a program that started up in Newcastle called the Smart Recovery Program, which stands for self-management and recovery training. And he said, you know, you might um, you might be interested in going down there each week. And um, so every Thursday I made the 40-minute um, the drive to Newcastle and I sat in on these um, meetings and I told my story with other people that um, was like-minded, that were in the same situation. Like I was in there with people that were prostitutes, that were addicted to drugs, that had lost all their children. I was in there with men that were alcoholics, that had lost their families. The diverse um, range of people that I was in there with, um, it just made me look at myself and go, you know what, I'm not as bad as some of these people. I can get out of this. And um, I continued on that program for about four months. And um, I'll be honest, I fell on and off the wagon so many times um, that I kept just getting back up and keep kept going to the program. And then uh, one night I was really turned it on I was drinking and drugging and I really stirred the neighbours up I'd been playing music loud all night and um I went to went down the highway I drove my car I was um still affected by drugs and alcohol and when I came back there was a sign in my garden that the neighbours had um, made and erected in my garden and it said the village idiot and that just that that sign um, and just how angry my neighbours were at me, just something inside of me just said enough is enough and um, I threw everything in the garbage bin that day and I've never never touched anything since. You know, there's such, um, such pressure on our young people this day and age and I'm sure as Karen's alluded to and Cindy is aware that when we have teenagers at school that are either bullying or being bullied or they're showing signs, you call them rat bags, you'd call them naughty, you'd call them outcasts, whatever you want to call them. Isn't it time we took this as a sign that something's not right rather than pushing them into a box and saying they're worse or wrong or they're idiots or all of these things? 
what do you think we can do for the youth? What if you could wave a magic wand, Robin? What do you think would be the answer to this to end it and to help young people that are in these situations come through and then, of course, help the people perpetrating all of these things? If you could wave a magic wand, what would be your big wish? Uh, do you mean in regards to violence or in regards to drug taking? Because not everybody that takes drugs and becomes alcoholics um, have been abused. I agree, I agree. But... To me, it's all part of a horrible mosh pit of hideousness. None of it's nice. So is there an answer or is there different answers for different situations? Um, I guess my advice is, um, you know, just just talk to your friends and family about what's going on with you. See, when I was in my addictions, um, it was taboo to talk about that. Like, you know, you, you couldn't say that you were on drugs or, you know, that you're an alcoholic. Maybe an, an, a drinking problem, but definitely not drugs. And so we couldn't, you know, it was a shame thing, so we couldn't talk about it with anyone. Um, we actually used to hide it. But, you know, um, I wanted to tell people, you know, I wanted um, people to know that I was struggling, but it was just so taboo that people would look down on you so badly. But... Um, that's changed a lot now. People, people aren't so, you know, um, it isn't so taboo to talk about things like that now. Um, people are a bit more accepting of it. Um, so I just su suggest that they just, you know, talk to their friends and family and um, make them aware of what's really going on in their lives and um, what's upsetting them and, and um, yeah, and... You're really looking for, for someone, though, to believe in you, someone to, to hear you because sometimes when you're sharing that, you can be sharing it with people who are already in that as well. Like, I'm just sensing it must be hard. Who gives you that little piece of hope? Is, uh, should the school counsellors be more accountable? Should the police be more involved? Do family meetings need to happen more like it seems to me we're, we're turning a bit of a blind eye. I know you're saying that it's more accessible now, but I still see massive problems. I've had teenagers just go through school and I still see massive problems around violence, drugs, alcohol, sex, all of these things. Is it getting any better, do you think? Well, a lot more young people are killing themselves these That's days. Right. They're committing suicide. Um, you know what I believe, and I'm going to be involved with the special commission into ICE um, uh, that's coming up soon, um, the commissions that they're having around New South Wales. And um, one of my things that I want to, um, to um, for them to put in place is that there's not enough rehabs. But when you just say I was still in addiction and I rang up today and I said, look, I, I'm full-blown ice addict and I'm an alcoholic and this, that and the other and I need to go and get help, they would say, right, Robin, you ring this number, it's called Access Line, and then you'll ring that number, you'll talk to someone, they'll take all your details, they'll make sure you're not suicidal. If you're suicidal, they'll, they'll get someone to come straight around to you. But unless you're suicidal, they'll say, okay, just wait and someone will contact you. So in about... Oh, usually takes at least three weeks, four weeks. Someone will contact you and say, okay, now, you know, this is um, this is the problem. Um, just wait here, hang tight. Someone else will contact you and it, that's how it goes. And what I want to see happen is that when somebody rings up and they're crying out for help, they're in addiction and they need help, they, there's facilities put in place where people can go straight away that day, like, um, they just go into treatment straight away and that's what the problem is. It's a huge funding problem and there needs to be more facilities because that's the problem. There's such a shortage of um, spaces in rehabs and facilities for people um, in addiction to go to that they need places that are going to take people straight away because with myself... I would be desperate and I would be on the phone and I'd be like, help me, you know, at three o'clock in the morning. Like, help me. I can't live like this anymore. And that would be the whole process that I'd have to go through. And by the time someone actually got back to me and said, hey, Robin, we're here to help you, I'm like, 
you know, stick that. I'm back on my little tangent. I haven't got a problem. I'm happy doing what I'm doing, you know. When someone cries out for help, they need help then and there. They cannot be, it cannot wait. And that's what the biggest problem in, is in Australia, I believe. There's well, not I'm, enough. Sorry? I'm, I'm with you 100%. You know, we have, I've created a foundation or a charity called Spirit Hive. And um, having gone through my own suicidal journey, when I was looking for help at three o'clock in the morning on bended knee with um, a handful of pills, there was nobody and there was nowhere that I could go. And the way that the system was set up, there's nothing for anybody that needs crisis support like that. Um, I was just I was just texting the girls just then. I said, you know, this is the, this is a major problem, and our governments our governments are not set up to to provide support at this level. Therefore, it has to be at the community level. But the tragedy, the real tragedy, occurs is like I look at Spirit Hive, where we're all about you know depression, anxiety, and suicide, and of course addiction comes into that. Um, for us to get funding. You know, I can apply for a grant today that's maybe $2,000 or $5,000, but that doesn't cover anything. So I can apply for that grant today, but I don't get that money until October, November. And it's, it's you know, that the, the whole system is not, nobody's looking at it well enough in such a way to say, okay, well, the government certainly can't help given the magnitude of the problem. It is up to community groups. And there are a lot of us like Spirit Hive that are out there contributing doing our piece but to get the funding to be able to make this service available to all of the community free immediately without having to wait for a call back you know you just uh, that that that's where the problem actually is i don't believe that we've got anybody actually looking at it significantly enough we're all talking about it here at community level but it hasn't made its way up to the people that make the decisions about where the money goes no exactly and um but you know you're never going to stop addiction you're never going to stop drug use and alcohol abuse and all of this stuff but there's got to be that's why people kill themselves because they're driven to the point where they can't do anything themselves and there's no help for them outside of you know their little box and so mm. they kill themselves because i was suicidal on a weekly basis like yeah. i wanted to die because i thought i can't live like this anymore yeah. like it really makes me cry it, it upsets me to think that you know i used to cry out for help but there was no help um, you know, and it, it's sad and that's why people are killing themselves. Like back in my day, people didn't commit suicide, um, thank, thankfully, but oh, they did, but not to the capacity of what, what's happening today. Um, people are just frustrated. It's, they're so consumed by their addiction um, and there's no help and they just think it's easier to, um, you know, shoot themselves or swallow a handful of pills and put themselves out of their misery. And, and I totally get that. Mm. Um, yeah, the government needs to step up. I mean, you know, they have a crisis over in Haiti or, you know, Cyclone Katrina, whatever, you know, overseas um, earthquakes and whatever, and they give hundreds of millions of dollars. Like, what's wrong with the, with the Cyclone and, you know, What's happening in Australia as far as like the ice epidemics, you know? Because when you're on these stimulants, stimulant drugs like ice, um, you know, the, what goes up must come down. So when you're high, everything's okay. When you come down, like you hit with a, like a ton of bricks and um, the depression is so bad. Like I can see why people kill themselves. The government really needs to take a look at, um, you know, this part of it and uh, and and do something. Yeah, I agree with you one hundred percent. Absolutely spot on. I think we've got. Uh, we I was looking at the World Health Health Organization at the moment. One person every forty seconds takes their life, and by the end of next year, it'll be one person every twenty seconds. So we're expecting the statistics to double. And already they're at, you know, record high levels. 
but we're expecting that to double. And I, I and I think that um, you know, while there are so many of us looking at this at a community level, it absolutely has to it has to be escalated. It can't just you know, it can't just be left the way that it is. It's insufficient. And I agree with you. I think addiction is probably always going to be an issue because we, you know, we lack so much connection. We lack so much um, uh, uh, harmony and there's so much suffering and there's so much violence and there's so much self-destruction and destruction that people are looking for a way to escape. We are. Yeah. And I I think we have to recognise that and say it's not... You know, if you say that you're looking for a way to escape and you happen to use drugs and alcohol, well, you know what? You're just being honest. Everybody yeah, exactly. else is just, they're just not being honest. They think it, they feel it, but they're just not being honest about it, you know? Exactly. And, um, and I, um, I say that the opposite to addiction is connection. You know, yeah. they're just stay connected. Uh, that's the problem. Like mm-hmm. with me, I have a really, um, like all my brothers and sisters, we've been estranged. Um, because of the way that we're brought up, even to this day, I struggle um, to have uh, proper um, relationships with my brothers and, and um, my sisters. Um, and so, therefore, like, I believe that um, being disconnected kept me in addiction longer than I should have stayed in it. If I had someone that cared about me and said, come on, Rob, give me a hand, you know, you're worth something. Come on, you know, get up and um, beat this I didn't have anyone no one cared no one cared like you know I used to be in my um in my house for for weeks days weeks on end and wouldn't leave because I was covered in sores um and not one of the neighbors would come and say are you okay like you know I could have been dead in there no one no one cares like you know and um it's very sad um you know, Robin, I think the more we share the stories, though, and the more we share the vulnerability and the emotional pain that things like this cause, you can't help but have empathy. You know, the judgments drop when you start to understand the full story, the full picture of why people become addicted or how we get into these situations or what we've been born into or however it is that we've, we've had to or have chosen to live our lives. I'd love to, to move the gear, as in you have survived this and all three of us are high-fiving silently in the background just how incredible it is that you have. What do you think was the, the thing that, the number one thing that kept pulling you through? You said you were suicidal every day. You said you wanted it to end at times for yourself, but something kept pulling you no matter what. What was that? And how do we instill that into those that are in pain? Um, I, I, I can't explain it. I just, um, I always knew that I was a decent, kind, caring person. Like I have the biggest heart, you know. Um, and even though people have ripped it out and trod on it and torn it to pieces and, you know, um, I always knew that I had a big heart and I was a good, kind person. and. Um, I always knew I deserved better and um, I, I don't know whether that kept me going like that, that got me through it or whether I just wanted to prove everyone wrong, I don't, you know, um, or whether, like I said, I was needed. I was needed because when people come out of addiction, most people, um, especially with six addictions like I had, um, they don't want to go and talk about it to anyone. They want to hide it. Most people are in denial. You know, they they won't put their hand up and go, yeah, I was an alcoholic, yeah, I took ice, yeah, I smoked pot, yeah, I've done this, I've done that. Most people are like, oh, no, not me. I didn't do any of that. Um, and so, you know, um, they people like me with the livid experience that can tell it how it is and be so raw and open and honest, um, to what it's really like and why I, I became um, the addict that I did. Um, we, we People like myself are needed. You know, when I go and speak, um, people are just in awe and they have no understanding of what it's really like to be an addict. They've only, like, read things or, you know, what they see on television. They don't, they don't see 
the heart and the soul of the addict um, and that that person is a real human being with real feelings. They just think, oh, that's another drug addict, you know, that's another alcoholic, look at us, you know. They don't they don't see past all that and um, I believe that's probably why I did get through because I can tell my story and um, people are now um, inspired by me. You know, um, they say, well, if she can beat six addictions, I can beat my addiction, you know, and um, it's a wonderful feeling. And I feel like my life hasn't been in vain. And I didn't want, I said to myself years ago, I don't want to die and be remembered as a drug addict and an alcoholic and, you know, a um, contributing person to the society. I want to be remembered for something different. And now I am. I'm remembered, I'll be remembered for the person that, you know, inspired so many other people to go and get help. And that's a wonderful feeling. Better than than any drug, I can tell you. (laughs) You know, sometimes I do look at those sorts of experiences, Robin, and I wonder if, you know, there is a bigger um, purpose and meaning at play. And when I look at the universe and I see how out of balance we are, I can't help but think that sometimes given that we are so out of balance, there are people like you that are there to bring us back into balance and to be the support and to be the coach and to show people that there is another choice that they can make. There's another option and it doesn't matter how old you are. Life always begins when you, when you decide it should, you know, so I congratulate you for, for doing that sort of work. I think it's really, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's really amazing. So where, whereabouts are you speaking? Like what sort of places are we speaking and, and can we help to get you out there a bit more? Um, I've sort of, since I moved to Newcastle with my uh, fiancé, um, I sort of have uh, scaled back a bit. Um, but I just, it's funny you say that because I just said to my partner this morning before he went to work, I said, oh, I'm going to try and um, get back into it and, and, and do a bit more because it's needed so much. Um so I guess the way you can help me is if there's anyone out there listening um, that is interested in hearing my story, like um, at a community-based group like Rotary or um, want to put a drug forum together and have me speak at it or um, any any place like that, um, that would be wonderful. Um, I'm writing a book at the moment and um, like I said, I'm going to be involved with the um, Special Commission into ICE. Um, and, yeah, so I don't know what after that, but I'm like I said, I'm not really doing much at the moment. But, um, yeah, that's my choice. Um, but, yeah, I certainly am interested in ramping it up a bit more. That's fantastic. I think the more people that we can get you to be in front of, then the bigger difference you're going to be able to make. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, Robin, when you spoke at Brewer to those um, women on International Women's Day, the questions that they asked were pertinent, I think, to that community and what was happening in that community. And you were able to answer them, whereas if they asked me those questions, I'd have no idea. You know, I wouldn't know what I was looking for. And I know you described a light bulb and something else, you know, if you see that in their room because, you know, you did... You did practical demonstrations on what might be happening and and you told these women exactly what was happening, but their questions were just so probing about um, an, addicti- an addictive life. Oh, look, like I said earlier, people, um, they just want to know and um, like I said, 99% of everybody that I come in contact with or who contacts me is a family member because they're the ones that are left to pick up the pieces. They're the ones that are suffering. Like, you know, imagine being a mother and every every night your son or your daughter goes out, you don't know whether you're going to see him again. Are they going to die from a drug overdose? Are they going to die in a robbery? Are they going to commit suicide? Are they going to die in a car smash? Like, and so it's the families um, that really, really... Um, struggle with this type of thing and um, I think they just want to know and um, I can't say for sure but um, well 
um, there was quite a few of the women that came up to me afterwards and said, you know, such and such is my son or, you know, my my um, nephew or my brother or my partner's got a problem. And um, I think they just want to know um, mm. because they just, they're so uneducated about it. And um, there's not enough people out there um, that are speaking about it because it's so, you know, it's, People just um, aren't talking about it as much as they should be. But I'm actually trying to get into the schools. Um, but I keep getting shut down because they say that it's too um, too confronting. You know, well, what's too confronting? Like, you know, um, being told what it's like if you get um, caught up in it or, um, you know, possibly committing suicide down the track because you've not been made aware of what really happens in the life of an addict. I just, um, I just find the whole thing frustrating and I, I guess that's all of us are frustrated and I, I really believe that, you know, number one, our community needs to step up. Number two, our neighbours need to say, hey, are you okay? I, you know, I find it interesting that the village idiot really hits you really got you and I, I don't think that's the way that we need to deal with it um, but it's interesting that that was your point of no return and your point of moving forward and not going back to addiction and things like that so maybe it's a neighbor if anybody's listening and, and you might suspect something maybe it's you know going and saying hey are you okay can we help in any way I think people are scared Robin, I, I think we're scared to become involved. Would you agree with that? Um, well, I, me, myself, like it wouldn't bother me, but I can see how people would not want to be involved. Like most people have their own stuff to deal with. And, um, you know, especially if they see someone that, and this whole ice thing is very scary to people. Like, you know, it's, all people see on TV and stuff is, um, and all they hear is the violent part of ice. Like, you know, um, I did more damage on alcohol and I was more violent and aggressive on alcohol than I ever was on ice. I know people that go to work every day, they're on ice. I'm not saying that ice is to take ice and it's acceptable, but the, the government has got the world, the, People so scared about ice that, oh, people that are on it are going to kill you and they're psychos and all this. Um, that's not really how it is, you know. Like when you see that ad on TV and that um, young fella's in the hospital and he's smashing up the hospital with the, hosp with the chair, like that doesn't really happen. Like there's probably circumstances why that's happened. He's probably drank copious amounts of alcohol after being on ice for three days and you're really tired and you're not eating so you know it just fries you um but um there's probably circumstances why they flip out you know um but um yeah uh sorry i've got got lost to where i was up to cindy no i think you were you answered it succinctly and beautifully and I think it's really important. You know, there's going to be a lot of people of our listeners may not want to listen to this podcast. Um, there will be a lot of people that, like Cindy just said, will be afraid to listen to this podcast or listen to what you've got to say. I just concur with Cindy and Karen that we all need to help each other to get you out there. I find it ludicrous that schools don't want to have you come in and talk about it. I mean, they have people come into schools that have been badly injured and maimed in car accidents, so they want to talk about driving badly, be it on alcohol or drugs, and they have people like that. Why would you not want someone who has truly lived a really tough, tough life to actually show that no matter what, there is hope, there is faith, there is, there is trust in humanity, that there is a resolve, there is an opportunity. And I just, I'd love to say to you, ask you on behalf of the three of us, to the people that are brave and vulnerable enough to listen to this podcast, what would be your message to all of us? What, what, what's your take-home message that you would love um, us to all know Robin Lewis by? Um, just 
yeah, I'm just, um, you mean my message to them or a message about me? Sorry. I just think, what's your message? What is it that you want the world to know? Why have you lived through this? Why have you enjoyed, why are you doing the work? Why do you want to get this out there? What is your message to those people listening, brave enough to listen to this? What's your message to us? Uh, it's just, you know, like, um, don't judge a book by its cover and, um, you know, um, just if, if you know someone that's like in addiction and whatever, like just give them some empathy and, um, some understanding and, um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, sorry. I'm just, uh, yeah, just a little bit overwhelmed by everything. I bet, I bet. Yeah, and I, I think you make a really good point there, Robin. If you know people that are suffering or you see people that who, who are affected by addiction, don't turn away from them, turn towards them. It's the yeah. very thing that this planet Perfect. is lacking and it's very much what they need. It's very much what we all need. And so coming back to your question originally, Kimmy, about that quantum contribution, let's stop turning away from each other no matter what. Let's start turning towards each other so that we can, you know, even prevent these sorts of things even having to occur in the first place. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Robin, you've been amazing today, my love. Thank you so much for all of your beautiful contributions. This has probably been a very difficult conversation, but I tell you, you've made a difference in the lives of so many people who've been listening to today's show. So congratulations for the, having the courage to be able to step up and share your experiences with so many people with the, with the intention of making a difference and making this world a better place because you're a part of it. We salute you. Oh, thank you. Thank You're you, Robin. Thanks. Thanks, Robin. No worries. For all of our listeners, you know what? If you Google Robin Lewis, you're going to find some amazing articles that this woman has written. If you are interested in being in touch with Robin or you need some help or you'd like to chat with Robin, please just go to our Facebook page at all the w's.facebook.com forward slash up for a chat and post your questions right there and we can get you in touch with Robin, no problem at all. If you know anybody or schools that would like to speak to Robin or have her come and speak, then you also need to do that through our Facebook page and we'll put you in touch with Robin directly. So Robin, we hope that this is going to be a really good start or a really good part of your career when it comes to making a difference in the lives of others and of being of service and putting your incredible experiences to incredibly good use. So we're looking forward to supporting you as much as we possibly can with that. Okay, thank you. You are most welcome. For all of our listeners, head on over to allthews.facebook.com forward slash up for a chat and you can post your comments and questions there. Alternatively, allthews.thewellnesscouch.com forward slash up for a chat. In the meantime, though, make sure that you tune in here next week on Up for a Chat and become part of the ripple effect where you're changing the world. We'll see you on the ride. Bye for now, everybody. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.